It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Scano Segoni, Bojo Kwekwe, Tansi, and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. I would like to ra- welcome on the line from Winnipeg, Robert Falcon Ulet, and he is a liberal running for Winnipeg Central. And uh, he is actually from the Red Pheasant First Nation in Saskatchewan, where he was raised in Calgary, but moved to Winnipeg in 2010 and quickly earned the reputation of a diligent community advocate working to bridge racial and economic divides. Robert also was a direct program director for the Aboriginal Focus Programs at the University of Manitoba, where he was a social science and humanities research council funded researcher on education and Métis issues of identity. He's passionate about addressing and solving inner city issues, city planning, and transit. Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having invited me here today, David. Now, Robert also says here that you spent 19 years with the Canadian Armed Forces. Well, actually, now it's 23 years, actually. Oh. Um, uh, so I've actually, because I'm in the reserves, but okay. before I was in the regular forces before. So at age 22, I joined the regular forces. I shipped off to uh, Quebec, uh, and I was, uh, I had the opportunity of learning French. It was, uh, it was a great experience. Actually, in four months, I became bilingual. I couldn't believe it. I, you know, growing up on the prairies, um, uh, not having a lot of, um, contact with the French language or people, and all of a sudden one day I'm able to, four months later, uh, you know, <laughs> work in French. It was quite an amazing experience. But you, you sounds like you also speak your Indigenous language? Well, I certainly am trying. I'm trying to learn as much as I possibly can. I'm not as fluent as I, I would certainly like to be, but it is important, uh, mm-hmm. and it shows that it doesn't matter how old you are. Even if you're in adults, you can actually learn a language, and that's why I tell people, you know, you can learn a language at any age. It's just simply how much time you want to put in and if you have the desire and often the opportunities. Uh, you know, there has a, this is one of the things I've been working on quite a bit in the House of Commons surrounding language. Um, you know, I gave the very first speech in the House of Commons in an Indigenous language, uh, and it was the first time the entire speech was in an Indigenous language. Mm. And uh, that was back in 2017. And I thought, actually, at the time, that they were going to offer interpretation uh, and translation into English and French. And I provided a you know, translated copy for them to read into the record, into the Hansard, which is the official record of the House of Commons. And uh, they refused the House of Commons. They said it's not in the rules. It's not right. in the standing orders of, of how this place functions. And so we uh, got into, I was very upset, actually. And so it led to about a two-year uh, battle, you know, points of privilege and, and study with the other committees and had to convince my colleagues. And then eventually I had unanimous consent to actually change the rules of the House of Commons to allow translation. So I was able on uh, January 28th and 2019 to give the very first speech in Indigenous language. In this case, it's Cree, and it was translated into French and English. And uh, it, uh, it was uh, actually a very memorable day. I remember uh, Kevin Lewis, the uh, translator who had come from Saskatchewan, um, who also works at the University of Saskatchewan, Dr. Kevin Lewis. Um, he was, you know, he jumped at the chance to do it, and we, now we've done it a, a number of times. Uh, but uh, he was so excited. I had tears in my eyes. That, uh, it was a, a beautiful, beautiful day. Uh, it was cold, but it was. we talked about, actually, the connection between the Netherlands and Canada. And so I highlighted the contribution that Indigenous people have made to the Netherlands. And I, do you know what that is, David? I'm, 
I do not, I don't think. Why don't no, you remind us people, all? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you know, people like Tommy, Sergeant Tommy Prince, the most decorated Indigenous oh, war veteran, for sure. uh, fought to liberate the Netherlands from Nazi occupation, and they fought for freedom uh, in the Netherlands. And so the Indigenous peoples are extremely important in the history of the Netherlands because uh, we fought and died for the freedom around the world. And I highlighted that. And to the people of the Netherlands, of Netherlands heritage, uh, and also talking about uh, you know us as proud warriors here in Canada. So it was, it was just a great, it was a great day. Well, of course, when you when you mentioned Tommy Prince, uh, of course we do know about that and and all his efforts and and uh, what a celebrated soldier uh, that he was. So uh, that's wonderful to hear you say that. Now, when you also say that this moved you to tears. Uh, you know, I you know after two years of of doing and working on this to try to get this to be able to be translated into the Cree language uh, and be spoken. Um, you know, when we hear that, we go, "Well, that's nice," but but what can you tell us about why that was so important and why that moved you to tears? Because at that level in the House of Commons, of course, the general public doesn't necessarily see all the stuff that goes on and see all the things that go on behind the scenes there. So. Can you take us a little bit further into that story? Of course. Uh, so language is uh, a way of conveying, conveying meaning, or you give meaning to things. It, it describes the world around you. And actually language, uh, you know, depending on where you place verbs or adjectives and nouns, uh, all kind of sets up certain structures in how you see the world. And indigenous languages are no different. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, know, you know, you could describe objects in a different way, um, and every word has a meaning. It has roots mm-hmm. that come into it and significance. And so in, in the case of speaking Cree in the house, uh, you know, I was told, one, that it's extremely important to know our indigenous languages, even in prayer, to be able to speak a mm-hmm. little bit of it in our prayers. Not to, We can do it in English or in French if we have to, but um, just the ancestors will still understand. But to, to, it will simply so, show our connection to our, our past, to our ancestors, to be proud about who we are, and I'm very proud of, of, of my peoples. Um, and so for me to be able to speak the uh, in Indigenous language in the house is an accomplishment, because if we look back at the 150 years of the history of Canada, um, 150 years ago, 152 years ago, I would not have been allowed to even set foot in the house. In fact, uh, one of my uh, mm-hmm. you know, the ancestors of the Métis, Uriel, was ejected three times from the House of Commons. Uh, he was the Métis uh, Indigenous leader, and he had been ejected uh, three times out of the House of Commons, even though he had won uh, three elections to take a seat and represent the people of Manitoba back in 1870, 1871. So, you know, the history of the House of Commons is not one that was in favor of Indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. And we weren't even citizens. We didn't even have the right to vote in 1960. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the lifetime of my, uh, of my father, uh, we now can actually speak our languages in the House of Commons. That is a true accomplishment, uh, one of emancipation and, um, you know, an absolute it shows the dedication of people like Sergeant Tommy Prince and other Indigenous leaders because he also fought for, you know, our basic human rights. Well, that's interesting. But, uh, it's kind of an interesting segue to bring it up to today. 
where we are in, uh, you know, coming down the pipes of another election. And uh, you yourself, uh, Robert, are, uh, are a member uh, of the uh, Liberal Party, and uh, you're sitting uh, in Winnipeg Central. And um, it, it's interesting now that you are running uh, and have won. In fact, you were elected in 2015, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, to represent the riding of Winnipeg Central for the House of Commons of Canada and uh, the federal Canadian uh, yeah. government. Yeah, well, in 2015, actually, I, I, when I was uh, first, you know, given the opportunity of running and I won my nomination in 2015, it was actually the most unwinnable riding for a <laughs> liberal. And, uh, and I actually went out because the voter turnouts, voter turnouts usually around 42, 44%. And I worked uh, my butt off talking to everyone including 20, you know, my writings made up of 21% Indigenous people, mm. uh, 20% Filipinos, uh, 5% Muslim, uh, large African population. And I spoke with everyone uh, talking about our collective needs. Um, also, you know, I did speak with people who are of European heritage and talked about reconciliation. And I actually had won the largest uh, mandate in the history of Winnipeg Center with 55% of the vote. Um, and also, uh, incredibly enough, we got the voter turnout up to 54%, so an increase of 10%. So, you know, very happy because people, you know, were mobilized and we exercised our democratic human right to vote and make, in, you know, influence who was going to be in Parliament. And I have to say, I'm, you know, very happy and, I'm, you know, I, I thank the people at Winnipeg Centre because they gave me the opportunity to go to the House of Commons and I think really push uh, people from across Canada to reconsider our relationship with Indigenous peoples, push the government uh, from the inside, in this case, to uh, make changes and to continue to move forward, not just simply have kind words and good words, uh, but make sure our, our words are the truth and our words are the people. As an elder told me, George Anderson here in, uh, on the powwow circuit, um, he said that to me, that always remember your words are the truth and your words are mm. the people. And, you know, to make sure that my colleagues' words were the truth and it also conveys the needs of the people. And uh, I was, uh, since I've been in Ottawa, I was actually uh, placed in the role on a consensus basis, actually as the chair of the Indigenous Caucus. And uh, because we have the largest Indigenous Caucus in Canadian history in, within the government, and I help provide advice to the government on policy, especially often not only in the public sphere. I give a lot of, do speak quite a bit in the House of Commons about uh, people and our needs. And, but I also speak um, uh, behind closed doors. And I'm not afraid to take that microphone and give a different opinion, a different vision, a different world vision, uh, an indigenous perspective on what we should do to move forward. And I often try to be, you know, also try to be very kind in my words, but if I need to convey uh, emotion, because some of these topics are very emotional, I, I will do so. But I'm, I'm very pleased that the government has actually made an, a concerted effort to actually change our relationship, uh, the Canadian government's relationship with Indigenous nations and peoples, and actually start to improve the basic human rights and respect the basic human rights of everyone who lives on our native lands here. Now you mentioned a couple of things there when you were you were uh, first uh, going out knocking on doors uh, for the 2015 election, and, and said that you you were able to raise the uh, the voter turnout and and things. I'm just wondering what what were you saying to people at that time? What was your mandate going in there and and, and asking people why to vote for you? Well, uh, one it was poverty. 
Uh, people were very, I have a, one of the poorest ridings in the country, and they felt very ignored. A lot of the political parties want to get up and give great speeches in the House um, and talk about, you know, great things, uh, you know, talk about international affairs. But the people, you know, I, and I remember very clearly one of my, I was talking to a group of elders, and, um, and you know, they, some of them, had an interest in, in Ukraine and that was, or it was actually, there was, Ukraine was in the media. And so, you know, they, they thought they would like an interesting topic. So I thought to myself, well, I can learn a little bit about Ukraine and, and discuss, you know, the Russia. And so I gave a, a, you know, a great 20 minute speech and lecture about Ukraine and, you know, Crimea and all the things going on with Russia. And then afterwards, uh, you know, the first question someone asked me was, why is there no supermarket in the downtown core? Which brought it back to me and said, hey, if you really want to represent people, think about what it is that their daily needs are. Mm. And so, you know, so, you know, we recently just sold off one of our malls here uh, that was owned by the federal government back in the 70s. Uh, it was owned provincially, federally, and municipally. And it's called Portis Place. And, you know, the, in the sale, uh, the new owners are going to be putting in a supermarket in the downtown core, which is a, a, a food desert. So this is one of the things that was raised to me and one of the things that I fought for and, and questioned this company on. And I'm happy to be able to say, you know, it looks like we're going to be able to obtain that supermarket. You know, a very basic thing because you can't, if you don't have access to, if you're in poverty, you don't have access to good quality food. Uh, you always have to go to a corner store or a convenience mm -hmm. store to sure. get something. You know, you only get the pop. You don't get the good fresh milk. You don't. You don't get. You know, a wide variety of of meats and vegetables and everything fresh. You get. You know, things of poor quality. And I think often, you know, a lot of people around the country, especially who are mostly a lot of my fellow colleagues or MPs, uh, come from very privileged backgrounds. Often uh, live in very nice neighborhoods in the suburbs. And they fail to realize just the levels of poverty uh, that go on in our country and the lack of access people have to good resources to provide for themselves and their families. And this is one of the things I wanted to fight for. And, you know, I've, you know, I've fought hard, you know, whether it's the Canada Child Benefit. Uh, in, like, for instance, in Winnipeg Centre, you know, we 15,710 kids get the Canada Child Benefits, but the 300,000 out of poverty across the country, lowest rates of child poverty in Canadian history, $6.8 million every month is given to parents to look after this, you know, to, to make sure that our children are lifted up. And that goes, they use that money to pay for the shoes, the clothes, the, the housing. Uh, and it supports local and small businesses, which then increase the you know, economic output in our community. And this is one of the things I'm so proud of because we have the lowest rates of child poverty now in Canadian history. And when I was out doing the door-to-door, -door, people talked about poverty. It wasn't just Indigenous people. It was all people. Right. And so I was like, yeah, let us do something about this. So I spent a lot of time working on that program, fighting in Ottawa behind, behind the closed doors, or sometimes on the finance committee, committee questioning the Minister of Finance. Um, and, you know, as an example of that, for instance, in the past, if you were on social assistance, um, governments across Canada would claw back certain benefits. So if you received a, uh, a certain amount of a child benefit, they would claw that back from you. And hereby, you know, your children aren't lifted out of poverty. And this program was meant to lift people out of poverty, lift kids out of poverty. And so I, you know, you know, 
questioned the finance minister at the finance committee when he came to testify, questioned the deputy minister, questioned the bank governor of the Bank of Canada, and it got their agreement that the next time the finance ministers would meet, that they would discuss this issue. And I'm very pleased to say that, you know, if you are on social assistance, there is no clawback in this country, that we actually aren't going to pay governments uh, the funds that should be going to our children. Uh, like we do with the seniors with the old age security and guaranteed income supplement. And so these are like things which are basic bread and butter issues, uh, bread and milk issues, trying to lift our kids up out of poverty. And so, you know, it doesn't matter if you're Indigenous or you're Canadian, it's important. You're listening to a Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. My guest on the line is Robert Falcon Ouellette. He is an, a Liberal MP for Winnipeg Central. And uh, Robert, just uh, if you don't mind, for, for us that, that aren't familiar or that familiar, I haven't been to Winnipeg in quite some time, can you describe your, your area when you say Winnipeg Central? What, where does that cover? It's everything from the forks, uh, from the area where Tina Fontaine, uh, the mm. young Aboriginal woman who was killed, uh, all the way out to the airport. About a, almost 100,000 people mm. from different communities, uh, a lot of newcomers, uh, 20% Filipino, 21% Indigenous, uh, Métis, Inuit peoples as well. Over a thousand Inuit peoples live in my riding uh, in Winnipeg Centre, people from European heritage. It's often uh, one of the poorest ridings in the country um, and uh, also a a population that often has a different perspective on looking at life. It, we don't talk about the middle class in my writing. We talk about the working class, the poor, and I talk about, you know, lifting people up. And that is, you know, and there's also a French population uh, as well in Winnipeg Centre. 8% speak French. Um, you know, it, this is, I think actually, I often tell people uh, in Ottawa, uh, I often tell them, if we can solve the issues in Winnipeg Centre, we're going to be able to solve them anywhere in Canada. Uh, I have all the headquarters of every uh, Indigenous community. Uh, a lot of the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs is headquartered here. SCO, is, uh, you know, the Southern Chiefs Organization for Manitoba is headquartered in Winnipeg Centre. All the ballet, uh, the Winnipeg Royal Ballet is headquartered here. The Wheat Board was headquartered here. The legislative grounds are headquartered here. Um, you know, all the insurance companies are in my riding. Uh, but I always try and focus on the people who actually live here are my most important constituents because at the end of the day, uh, they're the ones who vote for me and they, they're the ones who want my voice in Ottawa. And I was very clear, actually, when I was first elected, actually, was one of the most important things was I insisted that I would not be the voice of Ottawa to Winnipeg Centre, but I'm going to be the voice of uh, Winnipeg Centre to Ottawa. And in that vein, I've actually voted against the government on a number of occasions um, because it's extremely important to me to be representative of my community, not just see simply a, a, uh, an MP which toes a party line. And so I have had that opportunity, like unlike other parties, where if you cross the party, whether it's the Conservatives or the New Democrats who seem to eject their members anytime they vote against the party on any issue, I have been able to vote perhaps the most times in Canadian history for any MP uh, against the government and still remain in caucus. Uh, I'm very proud of that record uh, because I'm standing up for the people of, of, of my community. Well, uh, and having said that, and that's wonderful to hear you say, um, of course, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould comes to mind and the SNC-Lavalin affair in terms of that. What, what were you thinking about when all of that was, was taking place? Um, well, I think there's also 
Yeah, um, I, th- I was quite disheartened. I think people need to take a step back and, and consider what their role is and how we can advance the cause. And nothing should be about one person. Um, you know, my first speech in the House of Commons was about child welfare reform. It was viewed 300 times on, 300,000 times on Facebook, my very my maiden speech in the House of Commons, and I talked about CFS, child welfare. It took about three years to get, two years to get the minister, and then three years to get start getting legislation through the House, and we just passed C-92. This is important. You know, people's uh, egos, uh, you know, I don't care what side of the debate you're on, that's actually important. Reconciliation is important. We're just getting started right now, and there's a lot at stake in this election. Um, well, there certainly I've is. A lot uh, of time, yeah, yeah, well, we got the, we got the federal uh, child welfare reform legislation, which has just passed, which gives control of, in, of Indigenous children to Indigenous nations who now have to pass their own laws. This is going to spark quite some debate, and I want to make sure this is done properly with working with Indigenous peoples. Uh, we also need to make sure we fund uh, that child welfare reform legislation properly and we get children out of care, keep them in their families, build up families. Uh, the Indigenous Languages Act was just passed in 91, uh, which uh, goes a long way to protect Indigenous languages, but we also need to fund that. And, I'm, you know, we've gone from funding, went under Stephen Harper, of $5 million a year for Indigenous languages to $88 million, and we're going up to $118 million in 2021 for Indigenous languages, and I, we need to make sure we keep investing money so our children can speak the language of their ancestors and have that worldview. This is the important stuff uh, that we need to get done. And, you know, if we spend the time debating, uh, you know, things which, you know, I'm sure are very, extremely important. I think there are things which are far more important. In reconciliation right now, I've spent a lot of time working with my colleagues, whether it's doing pipe ceremonies, teaching my a lot of my colleagues about indigenous traditions and talking about ways of knowing on the house and, you know, having good conversations uh, with non-indigenous MPs. And, you know, there are the vast majority of people in Ottawa are non in, are not indigenous. Um, you know, we, we're at the point, we're at a beautiful point right now where we've gotten the civil service to change their positions. We've, we're starting to get, you know, government to move in a good, good way, in a good direction and if we stop now, if we have someone else who comes to office, um, this is going to stop for a very long time. Uh, because my colleagues were very wary in the beginning about what we should be doing if, if this is going to be beneficial. I said, this is human rights. And Indigenous peoples, at the end of the day, if they see that we've made a concerted effort, uh, if they see that we have acknowledged our past wrongs that we have made towards Indigenous peoples. And the Prime Minister has apologized, I believe, more than four times, five times, I believe, uh, to Indigenous peoples in various apologies. But he's also made, tried to make many reparations to Indigenous peoples collectively to repair the wrongs of the past. Um, we need to get people out to vote, because if people don't vote, um, you know, I think that's going to send a strong message to Ottawa that this wasn't important. And if if people sit around and think, oh, you know, my vote doesn't really count, I tell you, it certainly does. Because in Winnipeg Centre, it counts. And I tell you, it counts in Conservative ridings. There are so many ridings across this country where if Indigenous peoples actually voted, they could defeat Conservative MPs in rural areas and send someone else to office. And every time someone sits at home, they dishonour, in my belief, 
the work that's been done by our elders, whether it's Senator Gladstone to get Indigenous peoples the right to vote, or Tommy Prince, who wanted Indigenous veterans the same human rights as other veterans. Uh, we have fought so long to have our rights, our basic human rights, recognized in our own lands that we have this opportunity to go and influence the general public and influence the outcomes of our elections in this time in our country. That we have, uh, we have to take that opportunity. We can't let it just say, you know, next time, next time, next time. Because if we do that, someone else will make those decisions for us. And I'm going to remind people. In Ontario, when Premier Cloud Ford came to office, he cut the Indigenous Service Department by 27%. Now, we've gone from, in Ottawa, from spending on Indigenous peoples from $11.5 billion to $18.5 billion since I've been in office per year. That is, you know, Perry Bairgrove, the national chief, said no government has done more to advance reconciliation than the government that we have in Ottawa. And I just, I'm, I'm fearful that people will be cynical about politics. This is a beautiful endeavor, and you can change the world, but only if you get involved and you lift people up when you need to lift up. Robert, I think that, that there's a number of things you've touched on there that, uh, you know, that could be addressed in many different ways. First of all, uh, when, when you talk about Indigenous rights, uh, Indigenous people have been fighting since, you know, forever to try and get their, their, their rights. And we all know about how Canada has treated Indigenous people. That's, that's right out there. You've talked about reconciliation. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why we're in this position. Uh, there is a great awareness about that. Uh, when you talk about getting people out to vote uh, and getting people out there to, to, to that you don't want to get cynical about, about uh, the election process, I think the cynicism is already there because people haven't moved forward on things or they say things and they haven't done them. It goes back to something you said earlier about about speeches, and people want to make great speeches. And yes, they do, but then they don't follow through. It's great talk, but talk is cheap until, unless it is followed through. And it goes back to what you said originally about talking to elders, about your words are you. And, and, and you know, I think that there isn't enough of that. And now I know that politics is, is you know, a messy thing at times. I know that there's, there's but, but there has never seemed to be the political will who want to do anything for indigenous rights. And, and that's part of the issue that we see over and over and over again, even though yeah. they have made these speeches. Now, I know I did originally bring up the Jody Wilson-Raybould, and I guess you don't want to talk about that, but I wanted to also talk about something else uh, that, is, that is related to reconciliation and, and the indigenous people of this country. I think it goes to something that I believe is, is, is hitting us in the face, all of us, doesn't matter who we are, and that is this climate crisis that we are facing. It, yeah. is, it is there for everyone. It does it, you know, all these things you mentioned about, about rights, about languages, about indigenous people, yes, absolutely, they are all important, but the bigger, bigger thing that is facing us is this climate crisis, and, and it is now a climate crisis, and whether we want to admit it or not. And, uh, it, oh, well, I was actually participated in a debate where the House of Commons actually voted to recognize it as a climate crisis. I think, you know, like I, I speak with my colleagues all the time about this, and we want to see this move forward. Uh, you know, in 2016, 2015, when we came to office, um, we went to, you know, Catherine McKenna, the environment minister, flew to Paris for the climate change uh, negotiations with all the countries of the world. 
And not only did she not go by herself, she actually brought along all the provincial and territorial leaders. She brought along the other political leaders who wanted to come, including Elizabeth May. Uh, She brought along civil society. And she also brought along indigenous leaders, including the national chiefs uh, from across the country, including the president of the Métis National Council, to Paris with her because their input was so necessary. And we came up with the, what we call the, um, the Pan-Canadian Climate Change Accord after that, and it had a price on pollution. Now, this is important. We've got to move forward with this. I know, you know Canada is not the easiest nation to govern because it's so large. You, know, you have people in Alberta who want one thing, and you have people in Quebec who would like something else, and then people in the middle across this country, and we have indigenous peoples, we have uh, treaties that were signed. Um, this is, is very difficult to, because if we could snap our fingers, someone would have already snapped their fingers. And Stephen Harper tried to snap his fingers and remove Indigenous rights. Um, but, you know, we're committed to actually sitting down, having good conversations, uh, you know, and conversations that lead to some form of an agreement. Uh, but And we're going to get there. We actually are moving forward with, towards uh, you know, addressing the climate change issue. We're retrofitting buildings. Uh, I believe we're only uh, 80 million tons off our target out of the 300 million tons that we were supposed to reduce. And we are going to get there. We're going to end uh, coal-fired power generation. Uh, we're going to, you know, we're trying to transition the economy away from the use of oil with our cars. You know, we're trying to get more electric vehicles. Uh, we're trying to green government to reduce the carbon emissions. We're, when we build homes on reserves or off reserve, we're making sure that they're energy efficient uh, because, you know, we don't want people having to pay too much in hydro or, or electricity costs or heating costs. You know, we're trying to get there. We're banning plastics, the single-use plastics, so you won't be able to have those water bottles, except maybe in urgent, urgent situations. You know, we're, we're trying... The, we're trying to get there. Uh, it is the, you know, society has been geared so long to doing things in a certain way that uh, literally get people to change their mind has, uh, you know, when you start saying we're not going to have plastic knives and forks anymore, uh, you, I hear a lot of people say, well, what are we going to use? Uh, well, <laughs> we'll have to think of something else, you know, a different product that's going to, you know, be more environmentally sound and sourced and sustainable. And this is, you know, this is, and research still needs to be done in this, but, you know, we are trying to reduce the government's greenhouse emissions by 40%, by 80%. And, you know, we created jobs in the environmental sector. We've invested billions and billions of dollars. We are going to get there. You know, that that mentioning mentioning knives and uh, forks and those kind of things, uh, spoons, um, you know, they, 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 I remember the Swiss Army knife used to actually have a fork and a, and a spoon right in the knife itself <laughs> that you could fold up and take with you anywhere you went. So maybe it's that kind of thing we need to start thinking about, something that, that you can take with you and, and reuse without having to throw it out. Uh, that's that's yes. possibly one, one option. Um, uh, you know, the, the other thing that, uh, that I think about in terms of this, though, and I'd like to speak with uh, with. with uh, Robert Falcon Ouellette, the, the indigenous person, for a moment, if I could. And that is that, yes. that in terms of this climate crisis, when you see this and see what's going on, uh, the more and more I see about going green and, and, and the, the, the world wanting to, to uh, you know, reduce this carbon footprint and those kind of things, it just looks to me like we're, tr- we're trying to get exactly where indigenous people were before Europeans showed up on this, on this on Turtle <laughs> Island. They lived in harmony with Mother Nature. 
uh, they looked at her and said, she is a living thing and we have to live in harmony with it. We can't abuse it. It, it seems like uh, we're just yeah, trying well, to get right back to where we were. Well, I'll, you know, every time you would, you know, if you killed an animal, you know, there was, you know, relationship with the animal treaty had been made with animals mm-hmm. um, somewhere to sacrifice themselves so you could eat and you were to acknowledge that and uh, make sure that uh, that was done in a good way. And so this is extremely important that we, you know, as an Indigenous person, I spent, you know, I have a PhD actually, uh, where I studied a lot of the uh, teachings, uh, teachings from many elders, interviewing many elders concerning our spiritual relationship to education and what the education system should look like. And for me, it is important, but, you know, we live in a world of plastic. You look around us, everything is plastic. Cars are plastic, lots of our kitchen utensils are plastic, Uh, you know, know, a lot of our furniture might be plastic, Um, and everything we take out of the ground has a consequence. Um, It has an impact on something else. We we impact the, you know, that that larger ecosystem, Mm. and we have to be uh, very considerate and thoughtful about what what it is we do. Um, We can't be lazy. Uh, about what it is we what we do, we have to plan for the future. In in this case, um, you know, as a, as an Indigenous person, I'm trying to get government, but also as a Canadian, as a human being, I want to can you know and you know want government to change some of their policies. And you know, you know, I got to admit, actually, if you come up with you know logical, science based arguments um, and Indigenous arguments, Indigenous traditional knowledge is also part of that. With a with a good story, and you can talk to the to the minister of the environment or the minister of science about what needs to happen. Invariably, I find they always listen. It might take them a little time to get the civil servants on board or other groups on board, but at the end of the day, I found you know you might lose that battle, but six months later, that's where you could win. And this is the I think the importance of being able to speak with a wide variety of people, but also work within government, is the ability to work with someone like, you know, when I got unanimous consent for the translation of Indigenous languages in the House of Commons, I managed, it wasn't just the Bloc Québécois and the Greens I convinced, or the Liberals, or the NDP. I also had to convince Conservatives, because if any one of them opposed it, it wasn't going to pass. And so I, you know, spent time building relationships with them and, and getting that, uh, helping get that done. Um, and so... Those are the types of things I often think about what we need to do as Indigenous peoples. It's all about our relationship uh, that we have and how we can use those relationships to to put forward a, a vision for our country. Now, the climate change, as we know, you know, maybe, you know, the climate deniers are right. Maybe, the, you know, the environment is, you know, it's the natural cycle of the earth and there is no problem. But if they're wrong, if they are wrong, then we better be prepared uh, to modify our behavior so that we can fit more naturally within in the world that we live in, uh, that we can uh, live uh, in a more sustainable way. And that includes like what we eat, that includes how where we drive, uh, how we live, how we set up infrastructure, um, you know, heating systems. And, you know, even on reserve, for instance, we've actually, in a lot of Indigenous communities, number of Indigenous communities, not a lot, but we're going to get there, is I've been complaining about the use of diesel energy on Indigenous communities, even though many of their lands have been flooded by hydroelectric dams, 
and they have now access to the energy produced by those hydroelectric dams, mm-hmm. which is an absolute travesty. So in Ontario, when under the former Liberal government, which was just lost office, and the federal government, the Liberal government in Ottawa, we did a program where we actually started electrifying uh, or hooking up these com- those communities to the power grid to make sure that they could actually use the energy produced from their traditional territories, which I think is, you know, just the basic decency. <laughs> like it's, it's, it sounds illogical that someone, you know, all the energy, you watch it fly by on some line, but you can't hook up to get your own power done. Well, it, it goes back to the very, uh, I'm glad you brought up this thing about diesel because I was going to raise that point with you as, as well, and just in terms of, uh, you know, going back to that amount of pollution that is being generated from these, these diesels uh, for these communities. And, and you're exactly, you're right. Why, uh, there again, it's a perfect example of how there was no will to even in, in include Indigenous people or communities in the desire to extract this this. Uh, this technology and and this resource uh, and not give back to the people from the land from which they were taking it from. So, um, Robert, hold that thought. We're going to take a short pause and we'll be right back here on Element FM and uh, we'll be talking with Robert falcon who is the Liberal MP for Winnipeg Central right after this. And welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. My guest on the line from Winnipeg is Robert falcon Ulet, and he is the Liberal MP for Winnipeg Central. Uh, just before the break, uh, Robert, we were speaking about, um, about relationships. We were talking about the climate crisis. And uh, something you brought up I thought was interesting. And, and you know, when you said that, that maybe the, 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 the naysayers are correct about the climate, maybe it is just the natural cycle of things, but is it not, and like you said, if they're wrong, oops, but the point is, is it not better to err on the side of caution? And why not? And what, what is there to lose by doing that? We'd improve the planet, we'd improve our lives, and yes, it's expensive, maybe it's going to take some time, but it's probably something we should have started some time ago. Well, even, for instance, just you know, coal, like it actually there are emissions, it, but just also the basic air quality. Um, when you look at places like China or India, which burns <laughs> a lot of diesel and other uh, coal, very poor quality coal, uh, you know, a more of a, you know, a, like the very dirty coals, um, that uh, leads to a very, you know, you can't go outside, you can't have asthma, you might die. You know, thousands of people die a year in these countries from air, airborne pollutants. Yeah, we see uh, a lot of, uh, we see a lot of, we see a lot of images with people wearing those face masks and things on those very, yeah. very heavy days. <laughs> now, that, that leads me to another question, then, and that is uh, with with the Trans Mountain pipeline. Uh, where do you stand yeah. on that? How do you how do you figure that into this? You know, there's a lot of controversy around that. Well, so I have actually opposed pipelines, um, and, you know, there were at least three pipelines that were proposed for uh, Canada. Uh, one was the Energy East, one was the Northern Gateway, and the, the other one was the Trans Mountain. Um, so Energy East, I, I deposed it, opposed that one, and eventually we didn't see it built. And uh, then the Northern Gateway, because of the, the nature of the northern British Columbia coast, and the probably the inability to get um, to get uh, rescue crews and cleanup crews into the area if something were to occur uh, that was also uh, pushed to the side 
And then also there was actually a moratorium on oil exploration in the Arctic, which incredibly enough actually made a number of people in the Northwest Territories and uh, upset because they wanted to be able to develop those resources, including a lot of indigenous peoples. Now, remember, we're not all the same. We do have a variety and diversity of views and opinions, uh, but we do have the Trans Mountain, which is moving forward. Um, this is an old pipeline, uh, which um, is used to get oil to the West Coast in Vancouver. Uh, it is old. It does need to have repairs done. And it, uh, so what's happening along that route is it's being replaced. Um, and, you know, you know, while we may disagree or agree, we also know that a lot of oil will continue to go to market on the trains, which is also very dangerous, or even start using the roads. And, uh, you know, road obviously is even more dangerous than rail. And so this seems to be the best way um, to get that oil to market. But if we really want to actually stop, you know, the oil extraction, you know, what we should be doing is not driving cars or using gasoline, but what we should be driving is electric vehicles and, and using different energy sources because Canada is, has a lot of hydro that we could be using in order to, mm. uh, you know, power our vehicles, our homes, but we don't seem to be doing that very much. And so, you know, this, you know, you know, I've, I've pushed the government actually, and I'm very actually pleased that the, there are negotiations right now ongoing for indigenous peoples in uh, consortiums of indigenous communities that are going to be buying apparently this pipeline and they're going to be part owners where they're going to be able to obtain sole source revenue uh, from that to help fund indigenous governments in Canada. And that's going to provide one really good jobs in the community and which I think is extremely important. People need work. Men and women shouldn't be at home uh, with nothing to do. They should be out working a good wage, uh, living, uh, you know, supporting their families. And I think, having a job is an important way for a, a person, a warrior to support their families and their communities. But also at the same time, like I've worked uh, to push forward like something called the guardians program, uh, which is like people who are on the land who will monitor and make sure that the environment uh, is, is okay. That, uh, that this pipeline is, is done in a, you know, in a, in a good way that if something occurs, that it's, it's stopped. Um, and so there, you know, we are funding as well people who are going to be uh, guardians of the land, uh, who are going to be working to an, on environmental protection. Uh, and this was something, I, you know, I pushed when I was on the finance committee, and I'm happy the government decided that it was a worthwhile leadership program to help uh, give good employment and good jobs to Indigenous peoples in their home communities to be on the land, to understand the land, to do science on the land, to share that science with uh, with the with the Canadian people and and to show what's going on and to help push the agenda in, in a different direction, you know. Well, well let's I want to not have to use oil like or gasoline. I don't yeah. think anyone does. Yeah, well, let's let's hope that that they they listen to those words that are spoken and they get that information back. Robert, we're gonna we're running out of time, and I want to get one other. I, I would like to know what you feel about the uh, the, the Trudeau government track record w- with Indigenous uh, issues so far. Well, I think we've. Uh, so I'm going to start with, I, I'm an anthropologist. I have a PhD in anthropology. And, um, you know, systems are so important. 
you know, ways of thinking. People have been doing something for a certain amount of time, 35 years, a whole career. And you come along as a new government and you say, we want to do something differently. So you snap your fingers and you think, you know, they're going to change. And, you know, it, it doesn't change. You know, we still argue, we, we were arguing with Indigenous peoples in courts, uh, the 60s scoop survivors, uh, the Indigenous children. And even though we had, a, you know, the justice minister was Indigenous, we're still arguing with people. And we had to spend a lot of time working with our Department of Justice officials to change those mentalities to get, uh, you know, and if people weren't willing to get different people into their positions of authority and to say, we want to do things differently, like publishing our uh, mandate letters to say, you know, there is nothing more important than a relationship with Indigenous peoples. To say that every minister had an Indigenous component to their file that they had to advance. And, you know, I think we've come a long way, whether it's water borrow advisories, which we've lifted uh, 87 out of 143. Uh, we've made, you know, numerous apologies. You know, we've exonerated people. We've uh, come to an agreement on the 60 scoop. Uh, we've also uh, funded the National Inquiry into Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls and accepted the findings, which included the finding of genocide. Uh, we've passed legislation on child reform legislation, the Indigenous Languages Act. Uh, you know, I've had the opportunity to get translation in the House of Commons. We've built 140 school projects and schools across Canada since 2016. Uh, we've increased the funding for the policing program, and we've been helping to get more training through the assets program right across this country. Like the, you know, there are so many things that we could, you know, highlight, you know, spending going from 11.5 billion to 18.5 billion. Uh, it's incredible, the change. And, you know, it's been difficult because, you know, there are 250,000 civil servants that you do need to work with because, you know, the government can say one thing, but then someone actually has to do that. And you have to work with someone to get that done. So, you know, I'm very, proud of the record we have and I want us to keep I want us to keep going let us not stop today let us move like continue to move forward and for that I think people need to come out and vote if they if they don't vote I think they're sending a message that you know this was not important and I'm not sure who else is going to take up this mantle um, I'm not sure you know if to be honest if the liberals lose and the conservatives are in power they're going to make their own decisions and then I think well, my colleagues, who sometimes were a hard sell on a number of issues concerning even indigenous status of women and, and, and girls, um, you know, if, but, you know, I did convince and I worked with them and we got we got everyone on board moving in the same direction. If if if, you know, if imagine, you know, four <laughs> years from now. Robert, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry to cut you off, Robert. We're going to have to end it there. I'm, I'm sorry. But okay. uh, it's been great having you on the show. Yeah, I yeah. really appreciate passionate about this, and I really appreciate it. Tapway, thank you very much. You're welcome. That is the voice of Robert Falcon Ulet, and he is the Liberal MP for Winnipeg Central, and it's been a pleasure having him on the show. We're going to take a pause, but don't go away. We'll be right back on Moment of Truth with uh, Caroline O'Neill in our Ottawa uh, Bureau, who is going to be speaking with the chair of Nanos Research, Nick Nanos, and they're going to be talking about the countdown on the election. Right back here on Element FM. Thanks, David. Element FM, this is Caroline O'Neill speaking. Well, Caroline, it's Nick Nanos calling. I think I was supposed to call in for an interview now. You are, that's correct. How are you doing today? Fine, thanks. So if you're ready to get started, the federal election is on everyone's mind, and Nanos Research has a political time map. Can you talk to me a little bit about that map? Oh, the political time map. So what we have done 
math geeks that we are, we've created a statistical model and we have crunched the numbers on 73,000 neighborhoods across the country and mapped out uh, whether those uh, polling stations or neighborhoods are too close to call, whether they're swinging from one party to another. So it's a key resource that we've put out in the put out in the marketplace for people to understand the different shifts and swings that are occurring uh, in the Canadian electorate, except down to the uh, down to the neighborhood level. And why was this developed? Well, this is developed. So first of all, we're nonpartisan, so we do not do work for any of the uh, political parties or campaigns, and. This is something that we offer a subscription to for individuals or campaigns that are interested in, in learning about the, how the national situation impacts things in, at the neighborhood level. And do you expect to see changes at the neighborhood level between now and when people go to vote in October? Yeah, this is kind of, I'd always kind of say, you know, when you're doing polling and tracking and, and looking at consumer sentiment, or political sentiment, that is, it's kind of like the she loves me, she loves me not trend <laughs> line, that on one particular day, people will like what they hear or see from a politician or a party, and then the next day, they might be disappointed, and the third day, they might be repulsed. You know, right now, there's a significant proportion of Canadians, about one out of every five, that are unsure. And uh, and the elections, you know, I know the elections in October, but there's still uh, there's still a lot of time for people to form and shape their opinions. They could move around. One day they might be supporting one party, and the next day leaning towards another. I really like that description of the "she loves me, love me not" mentality towards Canada's political parties right now. And you kind of mentioned these swings that we can sometimes see really quickly. Have you seen any examples of those recently? Sure. Well. You know, at the uh, at the height of the SNC-Lavalin controversy earlier this year, uh, the Liberals, who enjoyed anywhere from a 10 to 15 point advantage uh, over the Conservatives, saw that completely evaporate, and the Conservatives uh, actually not only were competitive but numerically pulled ahead of the Liberals. Now, fast forward after the SNC-Lavalin controversy, and it looks like the Liberals are regaining support uh, that they had lost. And uh, the interesting thing about the shift in the last number of weeks is that uh, the liberal gains or improvement in support has been fundamentally driven by women voters. And I think what's uh, what we've seen in the numbers is during the SNC-Lavalin affair, the controversy related to that, the questioning related to the prime minister's role, the resignations of two senior female cabinet ministers that had a significant amount of personal credibility that for women voters at least they saw this and were wondering what's up and or saw this and didn't like what they heard uh, what transpired and uh, at that particular time they started to drift away from the liberals towards the conservatives fast forward after that it looks like the greater the distance from SNC-Lavalin the uh, more likely that women voters are moving back to the Liberals. But uh, I don't think they're, the polling doesn't suggest that they are uh, as supportive of the Prime Minister as they were in the past. It suggests that it's more the Liberal Party and the Liberals as a choice compared to the Conservatives. That's really interesting. Do you think that there are any events that have happened since SNC-Lavalin to now that have maybe inspired those voters to go back to the Liberal Party? Yes. I'm not sure if I'd use the word inspired. It could <laughs> be kind of holding your nose and going back to the Liberals. Um, interestingly, because we, track, uh, because we track sentiment and ballot preferences every week at Nanos Research, um, 
uh, one of the events that started or had an impact on the trend, trend line had to do with the visit of uh, American Vice President uh, Michael Pence. And if you remember during that visit, that was also coincidental with the abortion issue in the United States and Donald Trump making comments uh, related to abortion and access to abortion. And the Prime Minister took the meeting with, uh, with Vice President Pence to make a statement related to the Prime Minister's position on being pro-choice and the Liberal Party's position and the Canadian government position on abortion. And what we saw at least is in the weeks after that, some women voters actually uh, started drifting back to the Liberals. So I see this as more of an issue-driven as opposed to uh, personality-driven movement. And what it also suggests is that although people might have been disappointed with the Liberals uh, and the, the Prime Minister, that uh, when an issue such as abortion comes up, that it's actually motivating, at least for some women voters. So you mentioned that for a lot of people, this election seems to be more issue-driven than personality-driven, and that people are perhaps going to be voting to protect interests instead of because they are excited about a leader. How do you see something like that shaping our election? What I see is, you know, the upcoming election, and I I always kind of describe uh, elections many times as... uh, forcing voters to choose between a series of imperfect choices that uh, many cases people are actually voting against something uh, than for something and if we look at the 2015 election it was uh, a combination of factors that that uh, helped the liberals win first of all fatigue with uh, the conservatives and people wanting change also people liking the positive frame and uh, thinking that uh, the liberals would be uh, different than the conservatives and that kind of all rolled up, uh, had appeal. Uh, but, uh, you know, fast forward now, we're probably getting into a situation where I think maybe we maybe I'll make one bold prediction that everyone will be upset or most people will be upset with the outcome, whether it's Justin Trudeau winning again or Andrew Scheer winning, and those are the two most likely uh, outcomes. Uh, majority of Canadians will <laughs> be upset uh, because... Uh, because what we're seeing now is an increase in polarization. It's not as bad as in other countries, but more polarized views on things like climate change, carbon tax, refugees, immigration, all those types of issues. And they're all being kind of rolled up into a cocktail that's making things very volatile. Here at Element FM, we broadcast in Ottawa and Toronto. And when you talk about polarization, I can't help but think about these cities that tend to sometimes stick to their bubble. So I'm curious, yeah. are there any Ontario ridings that you think we should be a little more aware of or maybe keeping our eye on, especially in the run-up to this election? Uh, not a big surprise. I would put uh, Ottawa Centre as one of the ridings to keep an eye on. Uh, it was uh, it was won by the Liberals in the last federal election. They defeated the New Democrats, who uh, previously had two very strong uh, members of Parliament, Ed Broadbent and uh, Paul Dewar. Uh, but in the, uh, in the Liberal surge, Last time, the Liberals under Catherine McKenna were able to pick that up. Uh, that's going to be a, that's in Ottawa. That'll be an interesting uh, riding to watch. When we step out of uh, Ottawa, uh, I see ridings in the in the Greater Toronto area, uh, in Oakville, Mississauga, as one as uh, kind of key key battlegrounds. Uh, so, kind of think of the suburban 905 belt, where there's uh, a, 
a chance for more competitive races where the Liberals uh, won, but won by a narrow margin. So I would think of those those types of ridings as being uh, critical both to the Conservatives and the Liberals when it comes to the next federal election. Is Markham Stovall a battleground, do you think, this year? As in Jane Philpott's riding? Yes. Yes, actually, I would put it in the uh, up for grabs. Markham uh, traditionally uh, has in the past voted for the Conservatives on a number of occasions, not every time, but uh, on a number of occasions. Uh, I think what could happen in markham Stouffville could be a vote split where, you know, I think in that particular riding, and this is unique to the fact that there is an independent candidate, Jane Philpott, who has a following in the riding, uh, that the progressive vote could be split between, I'll call it the Liberal Party, Jane Philpott, the former Liberal Party uh, cabinet minister who's now an independent, the New Democrats and the Greens, with only the Conservatives and perhaps the People's Party, but the Conservatives primarily on the other side of the equation. So I think in markham Stouffville, that could be in play for the Conservatives. Uh, you know, the, it could be a scenario where the Conservatives could win the riding with the same number of votes as 2015, because the progressive vote is just split more. And, you know, to put this into context, if, if Jane Philpott wins anywhere, if she either wins, if, if she does well, the reality is, is she's going to pull voters from the Liberals and the New Democrats and perhaps even the Greens. So she might be splitting the progressive vote. But it'll, that'll be a very interesting riding to watch. She could win, but if she doesn't win, I would expect that... Uh, that the Conservatives would have a, uh, a chance at picking up that riding. As a pollster yourself, I'm wondering your thoughts on this. I've noticed that sometimes your average Canadian has a hard time approaching polling, and I think a lot mm -hmm. of people were very surprised, especially if you look at something like the 2016 federal American election where people seem yep. to read polls one way and then were surprised. How yep. should your average voter approach polling when they are making their decisions or thinking about this election? They should be skeptical. Right. I think I think that would be a completely uh, fair approach to to have. You know, think of it this way. The liberals in the last election won a majority government in majority of the seats in the House of Commons, but they won it with 39 percent support. So where the challenge is, is connecting popular support to actual outcomes in terms of seats. That's the challenge. I think be skeptical is a great piece of advice, and I'm sure that part of that skepticism is doing your own research. So for yourself, what are some resources you would suggest to people who are starting to think about where they're going to be casting their ballot in October? It'd be like this, you know, apply the same, uh, apply the same rigor that you would to a poll to sources, right? Is it the definitive word? Do they have a good track record of reliability? And if they are, you should use them as a resource. Nick, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. My pleasure. Nyawa, miigwech, wanishi, and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zabokin, Bruce Barber, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa, miigwech, and thanks for listening.